This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. to value listeners this week we're going to talk about the high utilizers and how we can transform care for those patients that are otherwise known as multi-visit patients multi-visit patients or frequent flyers or high utilizers whatever you call them they're often found in the ed inpatient units and other departments they're chronic users of the healthcare system they drive up readmission rates they tie up resources and we often, as a healthcare system, think that they're unimpactable, and often clinicians and administrators hold out little hope they can end the multi-visit cycles of these patients. Yet by looking at a patient's multiple visits as a symptom of a deeper problem, then we could identify and rectify that underlying problem, and clinicians can finally end the cycle of over-utilization of healthcare. Yeah, Eric, I'm so glad we could talk with Dr. Amy Boutwell today. She's president of Collaborative Healthcare Strategies. She's a leading expert in high utilizer care. And in our conversation today, she dives into her MVP method. And it's been used by rural hospitals, community hospitals, safety net hospitals, and academic medical centers across the country. And the general principles and insights and actions that are part of this MVP method really are revolutionary to care. They break the cycle of utilization and they change the life of these patients. And uh, again, Eric, I'm just so grateful and appreciative of Amy and her great expertise and insights. Well, Race to Value listeners, this is a really special episode. This is the first time out of 150 episodes that we've focused entirely on hospital readmissions and care utilization for these complex patients. Uh, definitely uh, uh, make sure you take some notes. Uh, Dr. Amy Boutwell has some great things to say. And before we start uh, this interview, uh, I want to thank you for your support. Please feel free to go to your favorite podcast platform and leave a review, and we'd love a five-star ranking as well. Feel free to engage with us in the Institute for Advancing Health Value. Now let's hear from Dr. Amy Boutwell as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Amy, welcome to the Race to Value. I've really been looking forward to talking about your work in transforming care for multi-visit patients as one of the leading experts on hospital readmissions in the country. There's so much we can learn from you in revolutionizing care to break the cycle of overutilization of healthcare services. Thanks, Eric. I'm looking forward to being here. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. And, you know, I thought we'd start off today just by talking about the the work that's been done in evaluating the issue of super utilizers in healthcare. In this transition to value-based care, we have such a daunting issue at hand when it comes to managing high utilizers. And these super utilizers are frequent flyers of the healthcare system whose serious illnesses require multiple hospitalizations per year. I mean, just one high utilizer alone can cost a local health system hundreds of thousands of dollars annually. And I'd like to engage you in a bit of a myth buster question as we start out today. Many of our listeners out there will recall the Atul Gawande 2011 article in the New Yorker called The Hotspotters, which profiled the program developed in Camden, New Jersey, in which a team of doctors, nurses, and social workers provided targeted case management for super utilizers with complex social and medical needs. And Gawande showed that this program made a difference with super utilizers experiencing a 40% reduction in utilization and had their hospital bills lowered from an average of $1.2 million per month to just over $500,000 after the implementation of the program, which was a 56% reduction. However, in 2020, almost a decade later, the New England Journal of Medicine published a trial of, the, of that high-profile Camden social care program, and it found that targeted case management for super utilizers actually did not reduce costly admissions. So I know you weren't involved in that study, but I, I wanted to just ask you about the some of the conflicting information that we hear about regarding super utilizer programs and addressing readmissions. It's somewhat confusing to make sense out of. I thought we, as we start our conversation today, can you talk about social care programs by healthcare organizations and whether or not they can actually make a difference in improving the care of complex patients and poorly resourced programs and, and make a dent in reducing hospitalizations and cost savings? Are we facing a scenario of once a super utilizer, always a super utilizer, where most patients who use healthcare services intensely are just too complex to manage without massive overhaul of social policies? Or is there actually an opportunity here to make a difference in value-based care and addressing these issues of super utilization? Okay, great, Eric. As I would expect, and all your listeners would expect, we're getting straight to the heart of the matter. So I appreciate your questions. First, I'd like to just talk about just a quick note on, on, on terminology and the group of people that we're talking about. And naturally, uh, we all you know, know them as super utilizers, high utilizers, frequent flyers. And I'm going to use the term in this interview of multi-visit patients. And I might sometimes use the term MVP in shorthand. And one thing that I've learned, it kind of starts us off with the, with the premise of your question around myth busting. And one thing I've learned is that it's really important to know exactly who we're talking about. In population health and value-based care, we often conflate the terms high risk, high utilizer, high cost, and complex. And we're even kind of starting off there with this very first question. And so in this conversation, we are going to specifically talk about multi-visit patients, people who are in and out of the acute care setting, a certain threshold of, of times in a given year. And what we've done so far in a lot of our population health programs is we've embraced what I call the myth of unimpactable. And that's the first myth I'd like to just, that you're bringing us to. We've embraced the idea that some people 
are too complex, so-called, are too disengaged or otherwise too challenging to surf. This very notion is in and of itself a structural inequity because we're sitting here judging on a segmented population basis a group of people where we're saying it's not worth it to care for them. They're too hard, too difficult. They're unimpactable. So we need to first and foremost walk away from a dogma that says it's not worth serving high utilizers and recognize that that came from a time and a place that we need to re-engineer our thinking around that. And so lean into what I've been doing with my teams around the country all day, every day for the past eight years, which is exactly who are these folks, exactly what is driving their utilization, and thus how can we re-engineer the system and the care we provide to better meet that need. And that is, of course, the path to advancing equity. So circling back to your question about the incredibly uh, compassionate, human-centered, important work of the Camden Coalition, it's not so much did their intervention work or not work. There was a research study done and, and, and the findings in that particular time and place and paradigm were what they were. But that really has nothing to do with our uh, imperative in value-based care and population health and equity to say whatever happened in that New England Journal paper and with that research paradigm was a time and a place, but does not define unimpactability for this patient population. And I'm just, I just really feel fortunate that I had the opportunity in my career to take that paper as a data point but continue to lean into understanding the human factors, the system factors, and the levers for improvement that the actual patient population of multi-visit patients possesses. And that's, of course, where the huge opportunity is. Amy, I, I appreciate that start and, and diving right to the heart of it, as you say, and, and understanding more about what an MVP is. And I'd like to dive into this idea of Medicare being a driving force, you know, since the passage of the Affordable Care Act and pushing hospitals to reduce admissions. And in 2010, the ACA identified preventable hospital admissions as a target for improving care and cost savings. And under the Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program, CMS aims to minimize the number of avoidable hospital readmissions by incentivizing hospitals to improve post-discharge planning through communication and care coordination efforts. And it's been recently reported that the average payment rate reduction for hospitals penalized by the program in the last year was 0.43%, the lowest rate since 2014. As an expert in hospital readmissions, can you provide perspective on the effectiveness of the HRRP? Is it a successful health policy intervention to address MVPs or are hospitals finding it more beneficial to just pay the penalty instead of exerting costly efforts to reduce readmissions. So I have been working all day, every day, as you referenced since and before the passage of the Affordable Care Act on reducing readmissions. And as a policy in 2010, it was incredibly important as a policy, right? And then 12 years ago now, because it put readmissions on the you know, quality and safety agenda, of every hospital in the country. And it really kicked off a wave of education and understanding and process improvement that was really important. Not to get us too, many, too, too long into a, a history lesson, 
But the policy as written in the Affordable Care Act could have been much stronger and could have moved much more swiftly to be effective. So I really like the policy the way it's written, but it didn't evolve to its fullest potential. And so what we observed is hospitals suboptimized on their investment in process improvement and naturally the delivery system transformation resourcing and skill set needed to really master readmissions according to the way the specific policy was rolled out. So what, what do I mean by that? I mean that many readmission programs ended up being what I would consider pilot in nature. So only case finding for certain groups of people, only case finding for those COPD patients, for example, that are Medicare fee-for-service, and then using limited means to make improvements. Well, that's not what we're all about here, right, at the Institute for Advancing Health Value and, and in value-based care and in, in reducing costs. We're about transformation. So the, the policy was uh, important when it passed. It could have been stronger. It has the language in it to make it stronger. What does stronger mean? All cause, all, you know, all cause, all payer readmissions would be the strongest version of the policy. So as a readmission expert, this is exactly what brought me to understand this patient population. What do I mean? Well, hospitals across the country have been coming to programs and asking me, if you will, how do we reduce our hospital-wide readmissions. And they say, we're working on heart failure. We're working on COPD. We're working on Medicare fee-for-service, but we're not getting hospital-wide results. Well, this is one of the key factors, right, in the, in the value playbook that the Institute has, which is know your data. And so we go back to principle one, which is slice and dice and know your data. We say, let's look at all of your readmissions. And when we say readmissions for the listeners, we mean adult non-OB. Okay, non-obstetric. So we say, let's look at all of your hospital discharges. Let's look at all of your hospital readmissions. Now, what fraction of those are Medicare? What fraction of those are certain diagnoses, COPD, CHF? And we start to get a really clear picture that heart failure readmissions for any given hospital account for um, only about 5% of their total readmissions. And you say, well, how can we create leverage out of our policies? We can't just pick away at one disease category after another and try to get through what I call Cecil's textbook of medicine and cover all possible adult conditions in, in a vertical way in order to get population-wide results. So this is the work that I did for the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality when they asked me to look into and, and, and develop a, a strategy to convert the methods we developed and used at the time for Medicare readmissions, they said, how would this apply or need to be modified to the Medicaid population? And essentially that brought me straight to population or hospital-wide readmissions. And the long and the short of it is when you look at a hospital's total readmissions and you say, what percentage of readmissions are among certain patient groups I mentioned disease-specific categories are single digits, bad strategy, low leverage, but multi-visit patients account for over half of all readmissions at every single hospital in the United States. 
And so as a readmission expert, I didn't wake up one day saying I need to fix the multi-visit patient care delivery model. Rather, the data brought me to multi-visit patients. And the myth that Eric started with, that there's nothing we can do, they're unimpactable, we shouldn't bother. I leaned straight into that because I said, if we're going to get population-wide results, we absolutely have to understand who are these people and what are their drivers of utilization so we can re-engineer that care model and get results. So Daniel, in conclusion, the ACA was extremely important. It started this whole journey. The policy could have been stronger, but nonetheless, in practice, it has allowed most of us in the hospital sector and the readmission reduction teams across the country to start to get familiar enough with their data that we know we have to go beyond payer-specific or disease-specific paradigms to find higher leverage population segments to impact. Well, Amy, I'd love to learn more about how we go about doing that. I mean, there's hospitals out there now that are doing the hard work to tackle overutilization as part of their value-based care strategy. And it doesn't take long for the readmission reduction teams to realize that the best practices they work so hard to put in place to improve transitions of care often don't affect that subgroup of the high utilizers or, or the, the multi-visit patients, as you call them. Um, and the MVPs are, are a small percentage of hospitalized patients, but as you mentioned, they account for a disproportionately high proportion of admissions and readmissions. And many seem to think that the standard transitional care best practices you know, as I referred to in my first question, just don't make an impact. I mean, there's people out there in industry that are saying, you know, these MVPs are unimpactable and and thus excluded from receiving our readmission reduction programs or services. And what, what I love about your model is you've received national recognition for the development of the MVP method that specifically addresses this important clinical and strategic gap in the readmission reduction portfolio of strategies. And the MVP method was designed to scale to be broadly applicable to a variety of MVP target populations across the country. And it's been successfully implemented by rural hospitals, community hospitals, safety net hospitals, and academic medical centers across the country. Can you describe the MVP method and how it supports hospitals and achieving delivery system redesign objectives that improve capabilities for addressing these complex patients with co-occurring medical, behavioral, and social needs? Absolutely. So starting with the definitions and proportionality that you referenced, Eric, step one of the MVP method really is to establish a very clear, operationally relevant definition of the patient population. And so as we talk about MVPs, naturally the, the audience is thinking, well, who are they? How do you define them? What risk you know, algorithm are you using? And it's, it's actually elegantly simple. The definition of an inpatient, multi-visit patient, is somebody who's had four or more inpatient admissions in a given 12-month period. So that's not a calendar year. It's a, in the past 365 days. So if I'm admitted to the hospital today, you look back at my MRN and you say, has she had, is this her fourth or more admission? And if so, I'm a multi-visit patient at that time. Similarly, in the emergency room, it's 10 or more ED visits in a given 12-month period. 
And here's the, I, I often say that definition comes from good statistics, good operations, and good epidemiology. So statistics, it means those definitions represent two standard deviations above the mean of average utilization for Medicare and Medicaid adults in the United States. So stats, two, two standard deviations above the mean, check. Good operations. The neat thing is I've done this with over 250 teams across the country. When we look for people who meet that definition, it yields us a steady stream of patient volume on a day-to-day -day basis, meaning from a clinical operational service line programmatic standpoint, it makes sense to create a special dedicated program uh, for this group of people because basically they're presenting with a consistent, feasible amount of volume on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's the good ops. And then finally, good epidemiology. Using this definition with a few specific exclusions, using this definition, we consistently find people that we expect would fit our uh, profile of a multi-visit patient, meaning we're not looking for any specific age or payer or condition or risk score um, or SDOH kind of screening scoring or something like that. But when we just use utilization at those numbers, we find people with the clinical, the behavioral, and the uh, social issues that are contributing to driving recurrent utilization that needs a solution. Uh, a couple exclusions, just to paint a picture, would be much like the readmission measurement definition. We exclude people who are coming into the hospital for planned chemotherapy or planned uh, radiation therapy. And then there are just a few other details that, that we exclude. That's because these events are, are part of a, a planned series of uh, appropriate clinical care. Then armed with the definition, this is what you can expect to find when you, when you use uh, the definition of uh, 4 and 10. You find about 7% of your patients in the hospital, adult non-OB, meet that definition. They're using one in five admissions. So you can literally stand there on rounds, right, and go one, two, three, four, five. That person is probably a multi-visit patient. So again, they're kind of everywhere, if you will. This group of patients are everywhere once we look for them. And that group of people account for over 50% of readmissions, 30-day readmissions. In the emergency room, the proportionality is also pretty stable. It's about one in every 10 or 12 emergency room visits. So again, you can be working an eight-hour shift at the hospital, and you know you're going to take care of a handful of people who meet this multi-visit patient definition. And that's what's exciting to me. I'm a hospitalist. I don't think we mentioned that. But multi-visit patients, we think we know who they are. But when you use a standard, systematic, data-informed identification system, there are so many more people who meet that definition than we think that it really lends itself to a segmented systematic redesign of care for them. So moving into the idea of the MVP method is founded on a big idea. It's founded on a frame shift. In care management, we will often say that 
high utilization is the problem. And thus, you know, we think that there's a solution there. There's a path to a solution to this problem. The frame shift in the MVP method really comes from my background as a physician. And as a physician, someone walks through the door and they present to me, not with a problem, but with a symptom. They present to me with a fever or a cough or abdominal pain. And it's my job to know, given the profile of the person in front of me, what are the most common causes for that symptom? And there are many unrelated potential causes of that symptom. I need to gather information, examine and interact with the patient and her environment in order to accurately diagnose which of these unrelated issues is causing the symptom. And I cannot hope to resolve her symptom unless I accurately diagnose and then mobilize the appropriate treatment response for that symptom. Only then will the tummy ache go away. That's the exact same paradigm we apply for the multi-visit patient population. They are presenting to us with a symptom. The symptom is recurrent, higher than expected utilization. We have to understand what are the underlying causes, I call them drivers of utilization. And when we identify what the driver of utilization is, we can then mobilize a differentiated strategy for each of those different types of drivers. This is why taking a problem solution or problem intervention approach to say that high utilization is the problem, let's give them you know, specifically you know, intensive care management or something, that's not differentiated enough to really get to, to resolve the issue. So taking this symptom uh, root cause approach is what really opens up this next level of success that we're seeing with our teams. And that's really at the core of what the MVP method is, Eric. Amy, that's a fantastic explanation and description and is really going to help us understand the mind shift that, uh, that a case study, an example organization went through, and I'd like to dive deeper on with you. And so this MVP method uh, was successful in improving utilization and care clinical outcomes for high utilizers at Harris Health, a Texas safety net system that uses the method within a team-based approach to link multi-visit patients with case management and services. And this case study was the subject of a health affairs article earlier this summer. And implementing the MVP method required Harris Health and his staff to revise their perceptions of high ED use and recognize that it was not a failure on the part of the individual patients but an artifact of the current structure of the healthcare system, as you described. And they had to overcome the dogma in the field that, this high utilizer patient, that these high utilizer patients are unimpactable, and then take the time to learn the many potential underlying causes that lead to the frequent AD use. And in doing this, they were able to connect their MVPs with services and organizations that could address some of the non-medical needs behind their ED visits. And since implementing the program, Harris Health has experienced a reduction in ED visits of about 15% across all its MVPs. At Ben Taub Hospital specifically, between January and September of last year, the ED experienced a 77% reduction in visits among the highest frequency users. 
Can you speak more to the success that Harris Health has had in implementing your MVP method for addressing frequent ED utilizers? And what lessons can be learned from this example that can be replicated across the country? Thanks, Daniel. I'm, it's been such an honor and privilege to work with the Harris Health team. And as you described, they have really dedicated effort in learning the method and executing the method. And they're a, a shining example of the potential that, that every team has to replicate uh, similar, uh, similar results. So first major thing I would say about what the Harris Health article and, and the case study um, illustrates is you've heard us so far in this podcast talk about the MVP method as a method. And, uh, and the reason why I emphasize it's a method um, and not a, a model, if you will, is that it's a, it's a blueprint. Uh, it's a blueprint that then that gets implemented with the, within the realities of the people, process, technology, and culture of any given site. And so the methodology is universally applicable, and then it gets locally adapted in its implementation. So as we talk about the Harris Health case study, I, I want listeners to appreciate and we'll in, infuse into this discussion that Harris Health used people process technology in the context of their culture, right, in the way that made sense for them. And this does not necessarily mean that the method has to be implemented with the exact same um, you know, ingredients of people, process, and technology elsewhere. In fact, again, the great privilege of my career in supporting hundreds of teams in 40 states uh, across the country is the method is what works, and then the local adaptation uh, to make a, a unique model on site is what allows each team to look like its own special snowflake, if you will. So with, uh, with the Harris Health team, uh, they did exactly what you outlined, Daniel, and to just emphasize, they developed an identification system. We identified MVPs when they present on-site to the emergency room, meeting the criteria. In their case, they, they dedicated a, an interdisciplinary team to mobilize an on-site response, which is intended to be alongside, in parallel, with the emergency room encounter. Uh, and so it's, it's alongside the emergency room team. And what we do is we look at the person across the past year. And we say, why have you, you know, why has this person been here so very much this, you know, th this past year? So the emergency room team, right, right next to me and at my elbow, they're looking at, why are you here now? Right, and maybe what happened uh, uh, yesterday, such that you led led here today. We at the MVP team, we look at the person and say, "Gosh, you've had you know 18 ED visits this year, and you've gone to you know you know four different emergency rooms. What is that all about?" And so we look at the person in context of their utilization over time. We identify what's the, is there a pattern of utilization? You know, and you can imagine MVPs have different patterns of utilization. So you start to get really good at seeing patterns with, that can help you with your understanding of what the underlying driver of utilization is. So that's an, uh, a new skill set. So the team dedicated uh, some staff to learn that new skill set. And then uh, what they really do in, incredibly well 
is they have we we have re-engineered internal workflows as well as completely created external workflows that never existed before to oper operationalize what I call a response system. So when you find a particular driver of utilization, we cannot rely on the heroism and creative spirit of each individual staff person, can we? That's called burnout. And so what we do is we engineer what I call the easy button. We need a response system. If you, if you find this underlying root cause issue, we need to give our staff the one, two, three step process to, to execute so they can feel and, and they can be efficacious in their work. And, uh, and so we've done that work and Harris Health has invested in, you know, the internal workflows and the external workflows and has created a very robust DOU response system. In the, and, and that's what's contributing to the population-wide, that is what, what drives the population-wide results. And then in particular, I just want to say that there's buy-in at all levels. And again, as we think about you know, the, 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 the playbook and the, the core competencies for value-based care, and we think about you know, uh, buy-in and leadership at the executive level and through you know, information technology and data analytics and clinical and operational champions and front lines and cross-continuum providers, the Harris Health team has all of that. And that's why this is not, you know, if, if you will, re-engineering care for multi-visit patients is a strategic delivery system transformation undertaking. And it's not merely something you can ask um, hardworking, well-intended staff to just go off and try to, you know, do work harder and be more creative and, and help help this group of people, because that is a setup for frustration and burnout. But when we re-engineer processes and, and create new processes, that's when we unlock the true problem solving that this group of people need. And I will, before I close here, I'll say it's not only true problem solving, so that's better clinical care and, and it's reducing, you know, uh, utilization. So that's higher value. I am more committed than ever to pointing out this is what operationalizing health equity looks like. We are re-engineering processes in the way that is necessary to get better outcomes for a group of people that were experiencing very poor outcomes in the past. So this is equitable and high value care when we re-engineer in this way. Well, Amy, as we talk about the MVP method and uh, health equity, I wanted to also talk about the New York State Medicaid program, which has been the, lar the largest sponsor of the MVP so far. And it's been focusing on hospital and community partnerships and care delivery redesign as part of its disrupt strategy. In their program, they began to view high utilization as a symptom of a broken system, and they started working towards identifying the root cause that was driving utilization so they could effectively address it. And this required the state Medicaid program to work across settings and agencies in an iterative way over time to address social determinants of health. And housing insecurity was a major social barrier that contributed to high utilization. And I wanted to read a quote 
from one of the MVPs regarding his own housing instability. I need housing, not a shelter. I need someone to make sure I can take my medicine. In a shelter, they don't do that, and they kick you out every morning. I need a stable residence, and no one's able to help with that. I'm thinking of throwing a brick through a window to get back to prison. At least then they'll take care of me there. And that's such a powerful statement, Amy, and that leaves me to wonder, how does a health system and state-level Medicaid program actually make an impact in addressing a root cause that, like housing that's so daunting to overcome? Can you speak to the need to address social determinants of health and health equity in the MVP program to address super utilization of healthcare services and maybe provide some proof points that have been realized through the New York State Medicaid program? Eric, that gentleman was my patient, JB. And he was my patient at Mass General Hospital when I was in attending there. And I met JB and he, at the time, as we've covered earlier in this conversation, I was, we'll, we'll say, you know, merely a readmission expert. <laughs> but JB is who taught me about drivers of utilization and you know no more powerful insight than than you shared uh in his quote there and as you said that brings us to the entire kind of framework which is um i was taking care of jb as a harvard trained mass general attending physician in what we like to consider as man's greatest hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, the medical Mecca, right? And on that day, JB happened to be assigned a doctor who took an interest in why he had been in the emergent, in, in the hospital so very much. And, and I happened to, you know, want to figure out a better way. And Jermaine, to your question, Eric, JB knew that there was a shelter system in greater Boston and, um, and, you know, he knew the entree points to that shelter system. And yet he could articulate very well why that shelter system and that particular paradigm was not working for him. So he was taking matters into his own hands to solve his, you know, address his needs the best way he knew how. And, and so it's not only a crisis, I'll emphasize, of housing, it's a crisis of creating pathways, human-centered and systems-informed pathways where we recognize that not everybody can go through the same door and not everybody uh, can be funneled in to, quote, the system in a standardized way. And part of what we do in the MVP method uh, as the chief of emergency room medicine at Harris Health says so often is, Instead of asking patients to bend to the system, we bend the system to meet the needs of the patients. So in the New York district program, uh, which has been uh, an incredible leadership position, we all know people have been working on equity and justice in healthcare for a long time, but I do want to just acknowledge the unique commitment of New York Medicaid to this group of patients um, and the role of Medicaid in serving this group of patients as an agency has been to stimulate 
capability building for equity value-based population health care and cross-continuum team-based care at the front lines. So that's really been the role of New York Medicaid in their, what we call the MAX program in New York, is technical assistance, visibility, uh, prioritization, and leadership has been exercised at the state level to incentivize and empower and train and support frontline cross-continuum provider teams to, to stand up these care pathways and better serve these patients. So that's really been what has worked, and I'll just say for six years now running um, at the agency level in New York State. And this is something that I think other state uh, Medicaid agencies, I commend them to look at the care delivery transformation investment that New York Medicaid has exercised, you know, in this and, and many other uh, domains. But in this particular way, one, one would ask, we have a mandate to deliver better, higher value, more equitable care for our Medicaid uh, recipients in a, in a given state. How do we do that? And I think one imp very important thing is to mobilize the technical assistance directly out to the provider and social service teams so that they can learn how to work together um, and, and, and drive for results. So, of course, we know housing first is, is key to, to health. And that's, that's something that right from day one, uh, when we identify a multi-visit patient with an unstable living environment, we focus on not telling the person uh, gee, this is, you know, here are the five steps and the 72 forms you need to take, right, to get yourself into the housing uh, and housing case management system. But we have a concept in, in the MVP method that says definitive timely linkage. And, you know, that kind of says it all, which is when we identify a driver of utilization, we, the accountable team, if you will, the MVP team who, who has been uh, accepted accountability for uh, improving care, we do the legwork directly and indirectly to ensure in the best way we can definitive and timely linkage to the solution, in this case, intake into the successful intake and navigation through to meet the need. And that's, of course, a very logical that any great case management team would want to do that, but it just happens to be what's consistently missing in these people's lives is the follow through, the definitive and timely linkage to those very challenging and complicated service delivery systems, uh, just as the healthcare system is, is complicated and challenging to navigate as well. I'll give just a quick, quick, quick story from New York, not my patient, one of the Niagara Falls patients, uh, and his name was James. And James was a, a, a middle-aged gentleman who tells his story on video that we have. He was generous enough to share his story. And his story goes like this. He had a good life. He had a shop and a wife and the kids and a house and a motorcycle and, and things were good. Uh, and then he came upon hard times and he lost it all. He lost the wife in the shop and the motorcycle and he and and he started drinking. And he ended up uh, living on the streets um, in and out of shelters. And um, he at that point, he was in and out of the Niagara Falls emergency room, as he said, hundreds of times in the past couple of years.
And when the Niagara Falls team first met him, he would consistently shun them away and, you know, didn't want to talk, wasn't interested in, 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 in their help. But again, another mantra in the MVP method is patient persistent and proactive engagement uh, so that we can form a helpful, trusting relationship. Uh, and so they did that. And that included following him, you know, as, as they were following along with his case in and out of a short uh, stint in jail, which was also an opportunity for engagement and to, to, um, to manifest their proactive, helpful, and trusting concern for him and his well-being. And all of those engagement points ultimately led to James being interested in, in working with them a little bit more. And what he would, what he tells us after successfully working with the team is he tells us that he would go to the emergency room and it was always after midnight. He would go to the emergency room to chill out uh, when he needed a place to escape. And so he knew it, this is a great insight into the difference between an SDOH and a driver of utilization. He knew what he was doing. He's a smart man. We respect him. We respect his problem solving ability and his survivorship. And he knew what he was doing and he went, he was going to the emergency room for a purpose. And yet as a smart man, everyone knows you don't tell the triage nurse you're here to chill out. You say you have a headache or chest pain or back pain or you're suicidal. And, and sure enough, that's what James would say. So if you only looked in his chart, you'd see a bunch of, quote, medical chief complaints, and yet that was really not at all, right, what was happening. And so we learned that James was, was using the emergency room in this way. Um, again, we respect his coping strategies and, and understand he's doing that for a reason. And we can then have a consistent, transparent, empathetic conversation ar around that and start to, to take steps down this path. Naturally, the team embraced housing first. So did James continue to exhibit signs of alcohol use disorder in the early days of working with him? Yes. Was he interested at that point in discussing harm reduction or uh, sobriety options? No, not at that point. Nonetheless, they adopted the housing first approach that we know is so clinically and financially sound and they got him first housed and then recovery came and then job job retraining came and then he re reunited with some members of his family and the end part of this video is so heartwarming and really what keeps me going and so committed to this patient population is that James can very clearly say that this particular MVP team uh, changed his life maybe even saved his life and now he's so happy. He's happy. He loves where he lives. He's happy and fulfilled in his life. And that really goes above and beyond any of these particular needs around substance use disorder, unstable housing, engagement strategies. We do these things when we accompany people um, through their journey so we can get naturally to a point where we have a man now happy, fulfilled, and stable in his life. And that is the outcome of the MVP Care Pathway. Amy, I'm really inspired by that story. 
and, and everything you shared leading up to it. And after hearing about these successes in the New York State Medicaid program, I echo your, your call to other Medicaid providers of care and programs and ask them to, to really invest in this and learn about this program. And, and I'd love to learn from you more about how to design and deliver whole person transitional care to reduce Medicaid readmissions. And you developed the Aspire frame that helps guide hospitals in addressing their Medicaid readmissions. And, and the steps for Aspire are as follows. A is for analyze, analyzing data. S, survey current readmission reduction efforts. P, plan a multifaceted data-informed portfolio of strategies. I, is to implement whole person transitional care. R, is reach out to collaborate across the continuum. And E, is for enhancing services for high-risk patients. Can you tell us more about the Aspire framework and how organizations can succeed in their attempts to analyze data to identify the root causes? Oh, thank you, Daniel. I wasn't sure we were gonna have a chance to talk about Aspire. So thank you so much for bringing it up. The Aspire guide, I'll first just say to listeners, we can put it in the show notes. The Aspire guide was uh, is, is the uh, guidebook that I wrote on behalf of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And it's been used by um, many hundreds of teams across the country in all 50 states. It's been a wonderful uh, it, it's had a wonderful reception because, again, it's a it's, it's a methodology, as Daniel pointed out, the ASPIRE is an acronym for these different steps. And it's something that small hospitals, uh, teaching hospitals, academic medical centers, rural hospitals, every single type of readmission team can use this systematic methodology to you know, advance their work um, to get better results. And as you can hear in the acronym, it's very pragmatic. The most important thing is to know your own data um, and to then develop your strategies and your portfolio accordingly. We all might say, well, that seems pretty obvious. It's not. Example from this year, I had the great privilege of serving the rural hospitals of Alaska. Uh, and we ran through the Aspire model together. And in most of those rural hospitals, they had not worked on readmissions because the, re uh, Daniel said before, the readmission penalty program doesn't apply to critical access hospitals. And they didn't, you know, necessarily have kind of the call to action that other hospitals had over the past decade. So they had approached, many of the teams had approached readmissions as kind of a heart failure problem, right? That's the, that's the baseline assumption. So we looked at, um, we, all, the, all the 10 teams uh, did step one, analyze your data. And I will never forget the learning session we did when everyone showed the top diagnosis in their hospitals that led to the most readmissions. And across several of those hospitals, it was alcohol. And you say, wow, I never read that in the New England Journal of Medicine. I've never read that in a Medicare readmission policy memo. And yet there it is, plain as plain as day, truth is truth. The data tells us where we need to go. And we looked at each other and we said, gosh, we would have never guessed it. But now that the data shows us this, we can recognize it to be true. 
So then naturally the next question is, so what are we going to do about it, right? We don't skip over it because Medicare didn't tell us to work on alcohol, right? We're going to do the right thing for our patient population because we asked the question, what's causing the most readmissions and we got the answer and thus we have to follow through. So step one of Aspire is not to be glossed over because whether it's rural Alaska or inner city Baltimore, there are findings in your own local data that leads me to say, don't read the New England Journal of Medicine and decide what you're going to do based on a large nationwide sampling. You go to your population, whether you're an ACO, a hospital, uh, or a payer, I guess, whoever you are, you go to your population data, you run your data, you ask the honest question of your data, and then you develop your strategy accordingly. This year, I also had the great privilege of serving actually two networks of 250 hospitals each through the CMS Hospital Quality Innovation Contract Network programming. And they also were focused on readmissions and equity. When one of those teams had suspended essentially all of their readmission work during COVID, as many teams have naturally, and when they got to the survey, your internal and external resources, they were quite convinced before they did that exercise that, you know, there were no resources, there were no people, there was no anything. How could I possibly ask them to pull together a team because there's there's nothing, there's nothing available? Well, again, a great example of working through this methodology, no matter what type of hospital you are, this quality leader came back to our next learning session and said she did go ahead and cast a wide net and she found out that, you know, the respiratory therapists wanted to be part of the readmission team. The pharmacist um, who's, quote, behind the, 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 the desk, right, wanted to be part of the bedside readmission team. The nurse manager was willing to do parts um, on the readmission team. And she came back, even while we're all recovering from COVID and have turnover and, 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 and all the constraints that we have, she came back with an amazing interdisciplinary and cross-continuum action team that she was then able to put to work in terms of deploying a portfolio of strategies. So I've been using the, 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 the Aspire method came into being in, in, you know, t- uh, in 2014. It's freely available on the website. The easiest way is in the show notes, but if you Google Boutwell and Medicaid readmissions, it will be the first hit. And it's just a very robust evergreen roadmap uh, for teams who feel like they want to take a fresh new look at their strategy, work through that ASPIRE algorithm, and I'm, I'm sure it will open up new productive pathways for your work. Well, Amy, I wanted to ask you one more question around emergency department utilization and how that ties to primary care access. I mean, we've seen at a national level about 56% of ED visits, which are about 67 million visits, are potentially avoidable. And the average cost of an ED visit is about $580 more than the cost of a comparable office visit. And the overuse of EDs is responsible for about $38 billion in wasteful spending each year. And we've seen a rise across all patient populations in ED overutilization, irrespective of age and insurance coverage. And one-third of ED visits are made during regular business hours when 
primary care offices are open, which tells me there's definitely an access issue in primary care. And it's also well known that a lack of timely appointments and available after hours care in the PCP setting also drives patients to the emergency department. And other drivers are related to financial incentives by hospitals to admit patients who arrive in the ED. Can you speak a little bit about the crisis we have in primary care access and how that contributes to ED overuse and hospital readmissions. And also on the flip side, what role does the ED play in readmission reduction efforts as well? Well, Eric, the crisis in ED utilization is is crushing us at the front lines. Uh, As I mentioned, I'm a hospitalist myself and to go down to the emergency room and see the hallways lined with beds and to see the stress and strain not only on patients and families who need to wait, uh, but on the staff who need to cope 24 hours a day with this type of volume, you know, is a clear call to action. And what I can best comment on, I'll pull from a couple elements in your question. First, we have uh, great opportunities to understand not only primary care access and and all of the exciting work that's happening with advanced primary care and transformative primary care models, but then naturally managing people uh, virtually and and, and in urgent care in more appropriate settings. But what I really have a, a perspective on is the not only the structural reason, which might be access, but the behavioral reasons why people come to the emergency room. And we'll put in the show notes, and I'll just reference it, a a paper I did with a a colleague, uh, an emergency room physician. It was several years old, but the lessons are, are fantastic, where we did basically the five whys for people who were in the emergency room and then they came back to the emergency room soon thereafter. And so that's how we we, we identified these folks. And we just basically asked uh, five whys root causes to, as to what was their thought process and what were the barriers that they encountered. And the so what now what was fear and uncertainty regarding their condition. And there were other findings as well, but That is what I mean by behavioral. I don't mean serious mental illness. I don't mean alcohol or substance use disorder. I mean care-seeking patterns and the human element of worrying and needing an answer, right? We worry we need an answer. It could be a parent for a child. It could be a caregiver for an elderly loved one and so on. And when we worry, we want an answer. And I think that that's very human and very real. And we, you know, we, if, if we grapple with that, we get not only to first order questions about can people call and get access to, to primary care, but we understand the urgency of the human care seeking pattern, which is if I'm worried enough, then I'll either forget about my three options in the community, or I will have a very low tolerance for navigating that. And I'm just going to make, you know, take my own two feet and get myself to the emergency room. So when we understand those uh, behaviors and care-seeking patterns, I think, again, we unlock a lot of opportunity to better serve our general population and leverage advanced primary care and virtual care and urgent care in a way that will meet that natural human fear-based tendency of why people would end up in the emergency room for a reason that we might categorize as potentially avoidable. 
I think there's a lot of humanity behind that story. In addition, I think there's a, a big opportunity also in the emergency room to take that same 5Y approach and to look at our patients when they're coming in and ask ourselves, does this person have fear and, and uncertainty? Do they need reassurance and guidance? Whereas the standard process in the emergency room is very much, let's make sure the worst case situation is not happening. And that's how our process is engineered in the emergency room is, I want to make sure the very worst thing isn't happening. And then I'll back up to, you know, reassurance and guidance at the back end. Whereas I think we have an opportunity to be more person-centered in our initial evaluations. And that will help us set a course for the emergency room encounter that does not reflexively result in an admission. So this is a lot of inside doctor and nurse baseball here that I'm talking about, but there are workflows that we have that we basically kind of put people on an automatic path upstairs when they come through the emergency room with various certain profiles. And so the role of the emergency room in reducing readmissions and slowing the cycle of utilization is absolutely ripe for effective re-engineering and practice change. And how do we know? Well, first of all, uh, separate story for separate day. I do this every single time I'm on call in my hospital. <laughs> and I, I do it not only as a learning exercise for myself, but I do it obviously because patients so appreciate being discharged home if they don't need to be in the hospital. And it, it really is a, um, an anecdotal proof of concept that when we look at the person and their fears and their worries and their fears and the worries of their caregiver that brought them here, we can often sort it out. Yes, it takes a modicum more of time, but it avoids that $15,000 admission. The other major proof point beyond my personal practice is the state of Maryland. And again, we'll, we'll cut to the chase on the amazing proof concept of the state of Maryland when the state of Maryland hospitals converted from fee-for-service to a global budget. And the, the short headline is something I was so pleased to witness and be a small part of during what they called their, quote, first waiver was the state of Maryland, when I first started working there, ranked, I believe, 47th out of 51 for the worst readmission rates in the country. And then the incentives changed and the hospitals were paid under what was called a global budget revenue. So essentially, they had to take care of anyone who walked through their doors with a budget instead of just incurring extra you know, fee-for-service revenue. And what happened? Immediately, they took their best case managers and social workers and care coordinators from the community, from the hospital, they put them in the emergency room, and they looked for those opportunities where people were coming in and needed reassurance, redirection, guidance, safe and appropriate, patient-centered, high-value stuff and they were able to safely care for people in the emergency room and discharge them back to what they needed in the community. And the cumulative effort of that, and, and of course, many other things, is that over five short years, Maryland went from ranking something like 47th in the nation to meeting and beating the national average. They got themselves into squarely into the 20s, which, of course, no other state has ever done. 
it was an amazing story that if listeners don't know about the Maryland case, it's one of the best proofs that we can have people walk through our doors. We can understand why they're here and safely respond to and um, address those needs and send them home without sending them upstairs. So there's a lot of opportunity and we have more to go to capitalize on those proof points um, as a as a country. Well, Amy, uh, as our country is moving to value-based care, I wanted to get your parting thoughts on how this movement can help us embrace the holistic, whole person, social, and logical constructs that are really needed to reduce readmissions. I mean, we're we need to somehow overcome this reductionist healthcare system that focuses just on the disease state and really think more holistically beyond disease specific care and these narrowly conceived care pathways and move to a more whole person care model. Can you uh, leave us with your thoughts on how value-based care can get us there to a more patient-centered approach in the practice of medicine? I like you believe that value-based care is is the is the way that we must practice medicine and whole person care. Your question really just prompted me to, you know, share back Sir William Osler, the father of, of course, we say medicine in, in the United States, his quote, you know, treat the patient, not the disease. And as you said, Eric, we've become just uber reductionist in our approach to medicine, you know, and the pendulum is is hopefully swinging back and we're writing ourselves to treat the the, the person. Of course, I believe that the real promise of uh, value-based care is to change our framing of the opportunity, which is to manage patients and populations with incentives that allow us to take a longer view, a bigger picture, and uh, to invest, yes, in in prevention uh, for the long term and also uh, at the tip of the spear where I work to solve relatively costly problems to save even more intensively costly healthcare dollars. And so value-based care and creating shared savings for delivering better care at lower costs unlocks that problem-solving ability that we have. And I think the key thing, though, that I've learned in pursuing value-based capabilities and these proof-of-concepts is we have to guard against yesterday's thinking. Yesterday's thinking is not helpful. Yesterday's thinking what might have been true and relevant and germane with the information we had yesterday in the context that we were working in yesterday. And one thing that I've had the privilege of doing as an independent advisor in in this field is I've had the ability to look at today's data, today's context, and say, how are we solving you know, the issue you know, today and, and how do we want to see this in the future? And so that, again, may sound uh, simple and obvious, but I find a lot of teams that are in the pursuit, the valiant pursuit of better population health and value-based care, they're a little bogged down with some thinking and assumptions and paradigms from yesterday. It really brings us back to the top of our conversation with someone 20 years ago called high utilizers, unimpactable, and that's had a a legacy ripple effect 
in our cumulative thinking. So let's cast aside those assumptions of unengaged and difficult to engage or complex and take the pursuit of value-based care more forward-looking into the future and say, how do we want this system to look and where are we going? And, you know, I, I, I guess as we come near the end of our conversation today, I want to, to thank all of the, the teams that I've worked with over the past decade because the spirit of innovation and can-do problem-solving is out there. I think that leaders bear the responsibility for creating the space to cast aside those old assumptions and myths and, and um, constraining paradigms and to, uh, to ask and empower their teams to say, how should this be? Not how did we do it yesterday or how did you learn about it in grad school, but how should this look? And almost every single time we say, how should this look? People have better ideas. So I think that's really the, the opportunity of value-based care is to of course, create the population focus for the, the problem solving of better care at lower costs. And then the leadership call to action is please let your colleagues and your team members say how it should be and how we should do this tomorrow, not how did we do it yesterday. Well, Amy, we really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Daniel. It's been great to be with you.